He is risen. All right. That was great. That was way better than the 730 service. I'll say that right now. I don't know what those people are thinking, but I wasn't awake. Um, so, so we are going to spend some time um, in the Word this morning, but before that, I want to I just let you know about one kind of piece of family news, which is really just an announcement to let you know that coming up as we wrap up our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to begin a new series in just a couple of weeks on Exodus, a couple of weeks on Exodus. And, um, and in that series, we're going to spend an extended period of time just looking through some of the parts of the, the book of Exodus, and we're going to specifically be looking at how holy God is and what that means for us to have a holy God and what it is for us to be a holy people. And so that's sort of the name of the series, a holy God and holy people. And so we're going to have about two more weeks on the Sermon on the Mount, um, and then we're going to begin that new series. So just to let you know that's coming up in about a month or so. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can turn it to, open it up and turn it to 1 Peter. We're taking a break from our series this morning in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about something directly related to the idea of resurrection and really hope that comes in resurrection. Um, hopefully I won't pass out. My body's been rejecting this whole thing, this, the tie, um, like physically rejecting it. Um, I, I started to get like, I started to get a headache, uh, when I was like in worship, second service. I think if pressed, I could make a pretty strong case against ties altogether because this seems like an area where you'd want to keep blood flow going and things like that. And yet here it is restricted, right? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but today's a special day. So, so we are, um, we, are conti- we, are, we, are, we are looking this morning in 1 Peter at probably one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Um, we're looking at just three short verses uh, in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, and I'm going to put them up on the screen as we read through them and talk about them together, as this morning we look at the idea of hope. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, these verses are not just theology and they're not just doctrinal information. Uh, this is a doxology. This is like uh, meant to be said sort of to and amidst a group of believers and even repeated back. Um, It's a part of worship. And the reason is because of what it's talking about. It is such a huge idea and it is something that we can be grateful for, that we need to be reminded of, and that we want to be encouraged of constantly, what we talk about. Why does the resurrection of Jesus matter so much? because it means first and foremost that Jesus has conquered death himself. And Peter says that we then are born again to hope through that. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, that that has given us, above all else, a living hope. Now, death defeats. That's what it does. That's the nature of death, is that it comes and it ends life, And I don't think there's anything harder in life than having to first come to terms with that. I still remember when that happened to me as a young person. I remember the sleepless nights. I remember really thinking about what that meant. Having to accept this thing that I didn't want to accept but would be forced to one day, which is that death would come for all of us. And like we say, apart from taxes, it's the only other real certainty, right? 
death. And that death by nature defeats and ends our life. And so what that means is that it means all the work and all the toil and all the good things and all the struggles and everything that I do and that I'm working on and working towards will ultimately end with death. And eventually with the death of the people who know me and hold my memory and those that are related to me that would come after me, eventually through their death, it would feel as though then it's all gone, me and the memory and all of that. Death, ultimately, we cannot get away from this fact, feeling that it defeats us. And so we, part of, part of living life and growing up and coming to terms with the world is us coming to terms with this, us having to accept the fact that death will one day defeat us. And because we have to accept that, we live in a world that has accepted that. We live life in light of that acceptance. We are very attached to the concept of what death does and what, even more importantly, it ultimately undoes. Now, in the first century world, when Jesus came and ministered, the idea of resurrection was not any more embraced than it is here and now. People often think that because maybe we have more science and technology and we're more living in this materialistic type world, maybe, that, that we think that the idea of resurrection is kind of ridiculous, but that people in the first century probably thought that it was a normal thing, that they expected it, but they didn't. They didn't find it any more usual or predict like, like something that they expected to happen any more than really we do. We know that by looking even at the teaching of Jesus. We look at how people receive the things he said about life after death, about anything defeating death. We look at the things that he said to his very disciples and the way that they received what he said and how they took it and how hard it was for them to wrap their minds around it. Why? Because it didn't make sense any more then than it does now. And so the good news, according to Peter, is that the resurrection says that we can have hope. God has conquered the one thing that no one can conquer, death. Now, to hope in something means to believe in it. Whether you hope in something now, you believe that it is real and it is happening now and it is worth putting my hope in now, or hope has a level of anticipation to it as well. You can hope in something that hasn't happened yet, but you believe will happen. And we don't hope in things that we're not sure will happen. We put our hope in things that we think will happen because our hope is our most valuable investment that we have to give. Hope is not just a word that we choose to live out one time or another. Hope is the way that we live. We live with hope in something or some things. And without hope, things just don't work. You see it all around us. You see it in relationships. You see it in marriages. I, I've talked to so many couples who've struggled in marriage, and as they've been struggling in their marriage, one of the hardest things to, to wrap your mind around is this idea that, that if I give of myself, if I put my needs beneath your needs, that somehow that will actually end well for me. That somehow that will end well for this marriage. That, that, that requires hope. Hope that living for more than just what I want is good. That's hope. And a lot of people, as we, we all begin relationships on the same place, which is this makes my life better. This fills me up. And then as it begins to get difficult and we begin to realize that uh, I have to give of myself and this doesn't always feel like it makes my life better. In fact, I'm supposed to now be focused on making their life better, not necessarily on mine then we begin to need that kind of hope. And many don't have it, many can't find it, many don't believe in that. And so as a result, we struggle. 
And a marriage can only go as far as it serves me and makes me happy and fulfilled in any given situation. We need hope if we found ourselves taking something that God has given us that is really good and making it an ultimate thing, making it into an idol. When we do that, or even when we have any sin in our life, anything that is causing us to not look at God anymore, but to look at something else, anything that's causing pain and destruction and death and damage in our life, anything that's hurting us or hurting those around us, when we see those things, the only way that we can let go of them or walk away from them is if we have hope that it's better, that it's better to turn back, that it's better to let go, that there's something else that's better than that thing. This is why addiction is so difficult for so many. Because as people around them say, give it up, give it up, give it up, it will be better. They say, but this is the thing that makes things better. So how do I walk away from the very thing that I have my hope in and then just trust that it will be better if I do? Without hope, we can't do that. Without hope, we can't repent. Without hope, we can't let go of the things that come in the place of God. Without hope, we can't be in healthy relationships. And the Bible doesn't describe a follower of Jesus as somebody who's living a better, happier, more meaningful and productive life now. The Bible describes a follower of Jesus as somebody who lives with a profound sense of hope. Somebody who is fully invested in this hope, this living hope that Peter's talking about. That is supposed to be the thing that someone looks at in a person's life and says, why is there so much hope? Why is that person living that way or acting that way or believing that way or seeming to feel that way? And that by looking at that, people are ultimately drawn to Jesus rather than just saying, look at the rules they follow and look at the way they behave and look at the people they hang around and look at the place where they go. It's the same in churches. The need to be defined by our hope in Christ rather than be defined by so many other things that we'd want to define ourselves with that might be easier for us or more about us. So if a follower of Jesus is somebody who is characterized by this profound sense of hope and that we celebrate today the fact that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the question is, what does that look like? What does that mean? And Peter goes on and he says, what that is is it's an inheritance. This thing that you've been born again to, this thing that you have a living hope within, that, 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 that you're possessing that gives you this living sense of hope is an inheritance. That sounds exciting, right? It's an inheritance. And an inheritance is, is something that we, that is something that we hope in. It's something that we look forward to. Now, an inheritance, biblically speaking, doesn't just mean something that is coming later on down the road. An inheritance means literally a secured possession. Okay, it means that you've got, a, you've got something and it is secured. It is secure. Which means that there's a component of it that you actually have now. So you can actually have something, and it's such a secure possession that you know that it will be there for your children, and it will be there to pass on to somebody else, that in that sense, it is an inheritance, that it won't just be good now, it will be good later. And as a result of that, this secured possession that we have is, is incredibly valuable. Now, this language that's used in 1 Peter, we read continually him using the language as he writes to the church that's going under persecution, feeling kind of as sojourners and exiles. He uses the language with them of the Old Testament a lot. He uses language with them in words and phrases that harken back to the idea of the Israelites and God's people. And there's a reason for that, because there's a lot of connections and because we are God's people. And this language that he's using of an inheritance matters a lot for them, because think about the identity of the Israelites. Think about God's people. 
Okay, they, they spend their first several hundred years as a people, really, a big group of people, living in bondage and slavery in Egypt. And then as they're released from that, what do they do? They wander in the wilderness. And then as they wander in the wilderness, eventually they get into the promised land. But then due, due to their disobedience and unfaithfulness to God, people are invading them, and they eventually are cast out of the promised land, and people are exiled and split up. You see, to be one of God's people means continually again and again waking, going to bed at night and not knowing if when you wake up in the morning, all the stuff that you've been working towards and building and constructing and investing in will even be there the next day. Whether it's because you're a slave and you don't know if the Israelites are going to show up and say, guess what? Move over there now. Leave all the houses. Leave all the stuff. Leave everything. This is where we want you now. Or if they're going to take everything away from you completely. Or if they're wandering in the wilderness, you're going to be like, well, this is a great camp. This is a great spot. And now we wander. And now we leave and we go on to something else. Or to be in the promised land and to be under the threat of attack and invasion and to know that you might wake up tomorrow, somebody might invade, take your children to where they live. And all that you've invested and built in and everything isn't there. You see, this idea of having a secured possession of an, of, of an inheritance is valuable for God's people. And what God tells his people again and again is, you have a secured possession. It's me you have an inheritance. It's me. It's not the place you live. It's not the houses you build. It's not the promised land itself even. You have a secured possession that no one can take away from you, even though you keep seeming to lose it yourselves. And this is a group of people who really are invested in this idea of hoping in something, hoping in something that maybe hasn't yet fully come and yet something that you want to experience now. And so this, this inheritance, this secured possession that Peter says that we have, this living hope, he describes it this way. He says it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. Imperishable means it can't be taken. It can't be robbed from you. People won't, people won't invade and steal this thing from you. And, and so many of the physical material things that we have, let's face it, you can invest so much in things, and they can be taken from you. They can be robbed from you. They will perish one day. You can invest in something and you lose it. I remember this vividly because it was, it was a year ago today. It was, it was the night before Easter last year. I had this dream. It was a very realistic dream. I woke up in the dream. Like in my bed, I woke up. And for some reason, I was compelled to go out into my garage. And I walked down the hallway out to my garage and I opened the door and the lights were on. It was the middle of the night still. And my garage door was up. And the car was there, and um, the bikes were there, and all the junk I don't want was there. But what wasn't there was all of my tools. Yeah, that's right. Now, I don't, I'm not invested in a lot. I don't, I don't accumulate much stuff. I'd like to think at least, I guess, probably do. But I don't have a ton of hobbies, but I like to build, I like to fix things. And one of the nice things about doing that for years is that you accumulate enough tools that you can kind of do what you need to do at any given job. And I had just bought a, a big toolbox on wheels that I could put all my tools in, which now that you think about it, maybe not the best idea, right? To put all of your tools in one box on wheels, right? And so I walk out in the dream into my garage and the toolbox is gone. All the tools are gone. And this is exactly what happens. I'm not exaggerating. I, in the dream, I fall to my knees and I go, no, like that. 
Because it never occurred to me that all these tools that I've been accumulating for so many years, all the, all the little tiny ones that I got from my dad and I got from Ellie's dad and I got from some other people, not just the ones that were expensive, but all the things that you need to do, all the jobs just the way you like them, that they could just be taken. I was talking to somebody, I told them that story and they said that their garage door wasn't working and so when they thought they closed it one night, it opened and the light was flashing inside the garage and someone came and stole their tools. It was like, come to this garage. Steal these tools, you know? And it's, it's, and then I woke up and was like, oh, 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 okay. Whew. So relieved, so relieved. And I, you've probably woken up that way from a dream. Hopefully it was about something more significant than tools, right? Maybe a loved one, something like that. But it is true that we can have stuff and let's be honest, right? A lot of our hope is pretty wrapped up in stuff that we have. But that stuff is perishable. To have an inheritance that is perishable ultimately doesn't mean a whole lot. And so this internal inheritance is imperishable. It is undefiled, which means it is pure. It cannot be polluted. And that's a big deal because when we really think about things that are pleasurable, that we enjoy, that we desire, do we usually think of the word pure with those things? Not always, right? In fact, really, what makes a lot of things enjoyable to us is the fact that they aren't totally pure. Or simply this, any good thing that we have that God has given us, we have this weird way because he created us to worship him and love him to fill the void of God in our heart by taking any of those things and making them an ultimate thing and then letting that pollute it. We take perfectly good things. We take our families and we take our jobs and we take our communities. We take our children. We take our, our, our spouses and our, and, our, and, our, and our homes and even our community and like a church. We can take our churches and we can allow those things to become the ultimate thing and they're polluted. They're not pure anymore. And so you can have an inheritance. You can have something that your hope is wrapped up in, but it can ultimately not be a good thing. And you kind of know that a lot of times. So you feel bad about it. It isn't really what it could be, what it, what it probably should be when you're honest. He says it's unfading. Everything ultimately fades, loses color, right? Everything, everything decays and withers and, and ultimately dies. Any house, any place, any beautiful scene ultimately will fade, will wither, will age in time and die away and be gone. And so he says, we have a born again to a living hope of this inheritance. Now, a living hope, living implies that we are behaving. It's our behavior. It's the way that we actually go about walking. It's not just what we think. It's how we live our lives. And we live our lives. We're living out this hope that we have, this expectation or this belief that we have, that we're invested in. So what does that mean, right? Think about that, to have a living hope, right? To actually hope in something in a way that it affects the way that we live. To anticipate something in a way that affects the way that we live. And we actually know exactly what this is like because when there's something really good on the horizon, it will alter the way that we live, especially if we're very invested in wanting to get that thing. You know what it's like to have a trip to Hawaii coming up and how nice that month beforehand can be, knowing it's coming, it's coming, it's gonna be great. A trip to Disneyland, it's coming, it's gonna be great. 
I, I remember I was talking to somebody after the second, first, I don't know, there's a lot of services, but I was talking to somebody after service, and, and I said, I said, I said, I don't know if I ever stopped being this way. When I was a kid, it was just the weekend. The weekend, the weekend, the weekend. I only had to go a week. But then as an adult, I think I kept living this way. I always just need to look forward to something, but I was able to go longer stretches of time, right? Because sometimes the thing would be better, right? But we know what it is to live this way. And we do this with really significant things too. We do this with having children, with a first child. I mean, I, I, was, I was talking with a friend uh, this week who, you know, was having their first child. And every little detail getting ready for the child is exciting. It's great. It's like to be celebrated because this is such a big deal. Putting a crib together, putting together furniture, exciting, fun, right? My friend was painting the baby room. So exciting, so fun to go pick out the paint, to go buy the paint, to, to paint a room. That's not fun. <laughs> But it is when you're having your first baby and you're painting a baby room because of how excited you are. I'm going to make you really sad for a second here, okay? My, well, not that sad, but my friend uh, who was painting his baby room sent me a picture today, and it was uh, this last week. So basically, he went and uh, he, he went to, to buy the paint, and he picked out the color, and he, he put it in the, in the back seat of his car, of his new truck. He just got a brand new truck. Put, put it right where the... Put it right where the baby seat's gonna go, right? Strapped it in, you know? And, and I'm thinking, like, I don't put my seat on, I don't put my paint on a back seat. I don't strap my paint in. But, you know, maybe if I was painting a baby room, you know, maybe I'd put it right where the baby seat's gonna be. Maybe I'd strap it in. Maybe I'd treat it with extra care. And then he sent me this picture of white paint in his brand new truck, right? And he was like, do you know how to clean paint? I got this. I was in a meeting. I got this. You know how to clean paint, you know. And they got it out. Um, well, kind of, you know. But. <laughs> and it's like, who would, who would put paint there? Who would strap it like that? Somebody who's painting a baby room for the first time, right? Because of how excited you are, the anticipation. If you're, if you're getting married, right, talk about anticipation. Talk about something dictating the course of your life for a significant period of time. Is being engaged and planning a wedding and getting married. Every little detail is, I think, right, exciting and fun, right? Maybe for one of the two people. I don't know. It's, it's, really, it's really different. I was actually way more into ours than Ellie was. So she was like, go figure, right? So, um, so it was like me and Ellie's mom going around, like, to see, I don't know. It was, right? That's, yeah, that's what happened. But, but, but to be married, you know, you, know, you know what it's like, you, know, you go on Craigslist, you find some furniture, you go buy it, you pick it up, put it in your parents' garage or something, like we're going to save it all, it's going to be great, we're going to get a place, we're going to kind of move in, we're going to have our own place, we're going to have all of our stuff, we're going to start a life together, we're getting married, this is so great, this is so exciting, this is so wonderful, right? There's this couple named the Finks, uh, John and Emily, and they, uh, they, they bought a house, they bought their first house. And uh, they, uh, they went, they, they put this picture on Facebook. I love this picture so much. This is them at Home Depot, right? <laughs> and they're buying uh, shovels and a bucket, okay? And a cheap hose that's going to break. Because that's what you do when you're buying your first house. Is you, you, I, remember, I remember going to Home Depot and being like, God bless America that I can buy a $10 hose 
right? And then it broke in three months. How does a hose break? Believe me, they just break, right? It like doesn't hold water. That's how it breaks. And then, and then I, so, so if anything, right? Like if anything, here's the freebie, right? This one's for free. Invest in a really good hose. It will pay off. You will be glad that you did. Okay, don't make the mistake that they're making with that, you know, big smile on their face. Um, how many of you go to Home Depot, throw some shovels in a cart in a bucket and go, hang on a second, could you take a picture of us real quick? Right? This is what anticipation looks like. This is what hope, hoping in something really looks like, right? And we know exactly what this is like. To be this excited and to let it dictate things in our lives. To make hard choices. I know people who have moved in. I, don't, I feel like everybody I know has moved in with their parents to save money to buy a house at some point. Or, or some of you have people living with you saving money to buy a house at some point, right? You move back in with your parents? Yeah, I'm saving money. We're buying a house. We're trying to do this thing. We're anticipating it. And so we're even willing to do hard things sometimes. Or for the parents who's like, okay, fine, you can come live with me again, you know? I'm willing to let you do that thing, right? Because of what we anticipate and what we hope in. The anticipation of what we already have but haven't yet taken possession of yet is part of something, of getting something really big. You like kind of have it but you're gonna take possession of it fully at some point. And so you live in light of it, you anticipate it, you let everything else fall in the background in light of it. And that is what Peter's telling the church to do. He is saying, you've been born again into this living hope, this eternal inheritance that is so great, it doesn't fail or let down or disappoint in any way, so let everything else fall away and live your life, actually live your life in a way that reflects that your hope is in that thing. And this is convicting this time of year, right? Because, you know, you know I get ready for Holy Week and, and I start thinking about it and I go, Okay, I, we're going we're gonna to talk about it again. We're going to sing about it again. We're going to talk about the hope and the resurrection, the life that comes in Jesus. But as I, as I look inwardly in my own heart and I go like, do I really, I mean, am I really living in light of resurrection, in light of the idea of a new life, in light of the idea of death being conquered? Or am I living like every other person maybe around me who lives their life to reflect the fact that death really will conquer and end everything? You can kind of know things and you can say things and you can acknowledge things, but you cannot actually live out a hope in that thing and we're in anticipation of that thing in a way that you do other stuff. So every year, year after year, Christians everywhere celebrate this day more than any other day because it is a reminder that one, that number one, God has already won that he is victorious, that the battle's been won. And it is also a reminder that God knows what he's doing, which we need to be reminded of constantly. Our God knows what he's doing and that he has already won and that victory has already happened. And that's a really great thing. But the resurrection means even more than just what comes later. It means even more than just living a longer life. It means even more than just knowing that it's not all defeated by physical death here in this life. Because resurrection is also the reason that we can have hope in our lives right now. It's the reason that we can have hope right now, not just hope later. One of the best stories in the New Testament is a story that Jesus tells um, about a prodigal son. He tells it in Luke 15. Um, it's accounted in Luke 15. 
And he tells the story of a young man who probably comes from a very wealthy family, it sounds like, and he comes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance, which in other words means, I wish you were dead and I could go on living my life as though you were. I want my share of the money, I want my share of the inheritance, and I'm gonna leave and spend it. And the father says, okay. And he gives him his share of the inheritance and he goes. And he, and he lives a fun life for a while and he squanders it all eventually and he finds himself living in a pigsty eating food with pigs, eating alongside pigs. And he comes to the realization that if, if I could just crawl my way back to my father's house and say I'm sorry, that at least he might let me feed the pigs and I wouldn't have to eat alongside them. And so he does that. He goes back to his father's house, basically crawls back to him. And this is what we read is the father's response in Luke 15. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This story is all about a son who is stuck in a position of absolutely no hope. He has squandered his inheritance, right? The thing that we get to hope in in the future, the thing that you get to plan on down the road, he's squandered it. So apart from living beside pigs, he has nothing to hope in in the future, nothing to look forward to in the future. And so he comes to his father with no hope, with the lowest expectations that he could have. And his father receives him, he brings him in, he celebrates him. And through his grace, the graciousness of the father, the son is able to live a life with hope once again. You see, the reason why we often don't come to Jesus is, is often not because we don't agree with the things he's saying, we don't believe intellectually to assent to the things that he's saying. It's because of the fact that we're talking about things that require hope that many of us say, I don't have that hope. I don't believe that I can hope in something like that. I don't think that I could have that kind of hope. I don't think that it could be like that. I don't think it could be that good. I don't think what Jesus says can be true in that way. That's not the life I've experienced. It's not the world I've experienced. I'm too far away. I've gone. Many of you know what it was like to be in that place and to come back to the Father. Many of you know what it's like right now to be in that place, to be that distant because you've left. Without Jesus' death on the cross and the power of his resurrection, the most that this son could hope for would be to come groveling back and live in his father's household as an animal, as a servant. Really, the best that he could hope for without the death of Jesus on the cross, without his resurrection and us being born again to a living hope, without any of that stuff, the best that this son could hope for was to never speak to his father again. Because he asked to be removed, he asked to leave. And I think many of us look at this and think the appropriate response from the father could very easily be, the justifiable, defendable response could just be, no, I don't even wanna see him. Send him away, that's what he wanted. He wanted to leave, and he got his inheritance. 
But through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God comes to us and brings us back. While he was still a long way off, the Father ran to greet him, to bring him back. And the end result is always the same. Why did I ever leave? Why did I ever leave him? That's hope. And we can't do that without hope, without believing in this. But here's the thing. It's not really a parable that should be called the prodigal son. We like to call it that because that makes it all about the first brother, the first son. It's, it's a parable about a gracious father. It's a parable about two sons. And we read about the older one after this. The older one who was angry and bitter wouldn't go into the party and the celebration. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see, for this older brother, his obedience is his downfall. He's clearly set up not to love and enjoy a relationship and love with his father, but instead to serve him and slave away from him. You could talk all day about these two brothers, about the level of detail that Jesus gives in this parable, about the fact that his brother exaggerates what happened to his other brother. Because you see, he's become a legalistic, self-righteous, self-justified, bitter, resentful person, angry when they see people find new life who don't deserve it. And I'm sure none of us know what that feels like. Even to the point to where he exaggerates what his brother does. Does he know his brother was with prostitutes? No. Does he know his brother did these things he's accusing him of? No. But he probably did slave away. He probably did serve his father. And imagine being the father and in that moment hearing from your son, the one that stayed, that I've been serving you. I've been living like a slave to you. Expecting in return that I would be the better, that I would be the best, and that I would be celebrated. And that this has always been about me. There is no way that this older brother will be able to have life and a relationship with the father unless he actually believes that he can let go of the life he has now. He has to say, either I settle for this relationship where I'm serving and I'm slaving and I'm justifying myself and I'm bitter and resentful and I follow all the rules and I'm the perfect one, either I live that way or I believe that if I let that go, that God has something actually better for me. What does that take? That takes hope. That takes trust. That doing so leads to that. And apart from just being a self-righteous religious person, anytime we see an idol, anytime we have sin, anytime there is death involved, the only way that we can really turn away, like I said before, is if we have hope. And the only way that we can have hope, that we can let go of that thing, we can turn back, and that there will be life, is because of the resurrection, is because of what Jesus did. That's the only reason that we can have hope that things could be better and things could be different. We will all struggle with being one of these brothers for our entire lives. This is a battle that we'll fight until we die in this flesh. And as we do that, we will continually need this hope every day. 
And what Peter says, again, is he says, how does he say that we take hold of this thing? How does he say that we experience this thing? He uses extreme language of saying that we are to be born again into it, meaning that we have to fundamentally change in every way or in the very fabric of who we are. We can't just kind of agree to it. We can't just decide to start living that way one day. The way that this phrase born again is used in the New Testament first is when Nicodemus, a religious leader, comes to Jesus and asks him questions. Now, we associate born again, right, with people whose lives are a total mess and who need to just get Jesus and get born again, right, and then have a fresh start. That's what we associate born again Christians, born again with. But that's not what we read about in the Bible. The person that Jesus says needs to be born again is a guy who is pretty nice and has it pretty well together and is actually seeking out Jesus because he wants to know the truth and probably pretty wealthy and pretty learned and pretty respected. His life is doing pretty well. And Jesus says to him, you have to be born again. And he can't wrap his mind around it because he's like, you're telling me I have to fundamentally change and start living a whole new life as a new person. And Jesus says, yes, even you do. Not just the person down the street that you think is a mess, but even you. You see, we have to be born again to this living hope. We have to acknowledge the fact that it, what we hope in defines us. What we hope in defines how we live. And so if what we hope in is going to change, then we change fundamentally. The very engine that drives me, every single priority I have in my life is driven by what I hope in. And if that changes, that fundamentally changes everything about me. And that's what Jesus is talking about. And that's what Peter is talking about. And that's what we celebrate. We celebrate that Jesus was resurrected, that we can have new life, be fundamentally changed at our core, and that that change doesn't require us to just obsess with following rules from now on. That we are actually changed in a way that like manifests itself through a completely different kind of a life that people look at and say, you have hope. And the way is through Jesus. There is one way to God. There is one way past death. There is one way to be born again. It is a person. It is Jesus. Jesus says in the Gospels, all these I am statements. He's got a you know, pretty high opinion of himself, apparently. He says all these I am statements. I am the light. I am the bread of life. I am a gate. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the manifestation of these things. If you want any of these things, you have to go through me. You have to have me. If you are not a person who likes relationships very much, I have very bad news for you. It won't work with Jesus because it's a relationship. It has to be through him. So, can we live in light of the hope that we have right here, right now, find tremendous freedom in that knowing that we don't have to be dead, we can be alive? Can we anticipate with great excitement the hope that is to come? Can we plan our lives around this thing more than any baby or marriage or house or job or a trip to Disneyland or Hawaii or anything else? Can we actually live in a way that says, I'm, I'm all in for this, for this living hope, this, this new life, the inheritance, that that's what I'm living for?
Let us see that hope is the resurrection of the dead like the first brother. Let us see that hope allows us to let go of what we have now because we hope in something better to come. Like the second brother. Without the willingness to do what hope lets us do, which is to let go, knowing that there's better. We cannot grow, we cannot move forward, we cannot move on, we cannot progress. And our tendency is to think that what's happening now is, is, is what has to happen. That the things I hope in now are the things I need to keep hoping in forever, rather than to realize that we can let go and we can have hope in something better, something bigger. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One of the things that I was talking to someone about in, again, I don't know, in one of the services, was um, our church and, and hope in our church. You know, it's been, it's been, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's been almost a year that I've been here in the area uh, as a new lead pastor of the church here. And what, what's been incredible to me is to think back on the process that this church went through, that Pastor Tom went through as he was retiring, of saying, like, things are good. We love this place, we love these things, and, and I love being here, but I believe that there's something else that God wants also. And the only way that we can ever let go, right, of, of, of what we have, of the way we are, like, like the only way that we could ever let go and say there might be something better even is to have hope, right? To have hope. You, you know, you, you take a chance on somebody who's, who's like the youngest person, right, ever, right? When I found out I was younger than the youth pastor, I was like, ah, oh, man, you know? <laughs> But, but, but you, the only way that you can do something like that is if you believe and you have hope that God can continue to do more even than he's already done at a place where he's done so much, right? And that is the way our families operate. That is the way our, our lives operate is, is our ability to even like see God do amazing things and then say, do I have hope that God can continue to do even more potentially or just new things? Because the only way that I can ever let go and not hold too tightly on what I have now is to trust that that's how it works with God. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you have done. We thank you for your son. God, as we talk about resurrection and about death being conquered, we recognize that for many of us, repentance is, is in order because it's convicting to think about the things that we really hope in, the things that we're really living for in anticipation of. And honestly, the way that uh, we might like to think that we live so differently from somebody who's not a believer potentially, but, but when we look at what we hope in and what we're invested in, what we're anticipating, we realize I don't live that differently. And so for those of us that need to repent of that, Father, we do. We just give it to you, and we recognize that there are things that have been good things that we've made into ultimate things, and, and that we have to let those things go, God. Because um, there is something far greater to hope in. God, those of us who need to repent of anything, Father, 
our prayers that we can do that, not because we're overwhelmed with guilt and shame, because if that's the only reason we ever repent, then we'll still find much of that same guilt and shame on the other end of repentance. But if we can repent through hope, hope in what could come, hope in how things could be, then we can die to ourselves. And Father, that's our prayers that we would do that. God, we pray that just as Christ conquered death through resurrection, that, that gave us this inheritance that is so far superior to anything else, we pray that we would have confidence in that, that it would shape the very way that we live, the fabric of our lives, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You know, the, the word, the idea of the gospel in the New Testament and the bringer of the gospel um, is best described most literally in a scenario in which there's a battle going on and there's a victory. And the, the fighting force sends someone back to town to tell everybody about the, the victory that has happened, about the good news of what has happened. That person is literally, when translated, called an evangelist. It's the bringer of the good news, which is why the only way for us as a church to really be who God has called us to be is to be a group of people who are doing that. We bring the good news of the fact that the battle has been won, the fact that victory has already happened, the fact that sin has been defeated and death has been conquered, and yet even better than that is we hold within us this unique thing of something that has yet to fully come and the hope of that. And so the first and biggest thing that must characterize who we are as a church collectively, who we are as individual people, is people of profound hope. That when people look at our lives, they look at our families, they look at our church, they see first and foremost hope. And they say, why? Amen? All right, I'm going to take the tie off as I do this. God bless you guys. Have a great Easter. <laughs>